Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On our program tonight, heading home, the airlift is underway to evacuate Canadians from China and the epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak. We'll have the latest on the government's continuing response. The Prime Minister is on his way to Africa trying to win support for Canada's bid to win a seat on the UN Security Council. But is it a desperation move for a faltering effort? And how will it affect the Liberal claim that Canada's back? Two senators are leading a charge to change the rules in the upper chamber in an effort to stop partisan moves to block important legislation. And a controversy over the court challenges program and a rough week for Peter McKay. Lots to cover with our weekly panel of party commentators. But we'll begin tonight with the latest on the airlift of Canadians who had been stranded in China because of the coronavirus outbreak. At this hour, a chartered aircraft is winging its way back to Canada from Wuhan, China, carrying more than 200 Canadians, crew and medical staff. It's headed for Vancouver and then on to Canadian Forces Base Trenton in Ontario. Now, it turns out some of the Canadians who said they wanted to be evacuated either didn't show up at the airport or changed their minds or perhaps weren't allowed on the plane. So in the end, there are just 176 passengers on the plane, even though more than 200 had asked for a flight home. Now, once in Trenton, they will be placed in quarantine at a motel on the airbase there for two weeks to make sure they don't have the virus before being allowed to return to their homes across Canada. A second plane is also en route to Canada from China. That one is a plane chartered by the United States. It's allowing about 50 Canadian passengers to hitch a ride out of China because there was room on that plane. And the government announced today another Canadian charter is scheduled to pick up more Canadians on Monday. Earlier today, Canada's Ministers of Foreign Affairs and Health provided another update on the airlift and what happens next. Here's part of what they had to say. Regarding uh, Trenton, it, will there be enough room for everybody there? And um, also, when you're in quarantine like this, I think you've talked about counselling. What, what can people anticipate they might go through when they're... Um, you know, uh, kept isolated like that for two weeks. Mm -hmm. um, there will be enough room, yes, for the first flight and the flight from the United States. Uh, we will have to assess our capacity for the potential of a second flight, and we're working on those details now, and we'll, we'll tell you more about that as it evolves. In terms of uh, why we are uh, having mental health supports on site, I think it's important to remember that people have been through a very stressful time under quarantine, and one of the largest cities in the Hubei province. Uh, obviously, and maybe you've seen some of the videos, I mean, the city is completely shut down. Uh, people have not been able to come and go freely, even from their own homes. Many people have been uh, alone and away from their families uh, in a very uncertain situation. Um, you know, this is uh, 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 a scary time for them, not knowing whether or not they're going to be able to get back to Canada and their families. They may be leaving their own, uh, their own established course of study, for example, or they may be employed uh, in Hubei. There are a variety of different situations, but what we do know that is that it will be very stressful for them. And so providing those emotional supports and that uh, mental health support, I think it's critical to making sure that they uh, readjust to life in Canada. Uh, question to Minister Champagne. You've recommended that Canadians should leave China, if, you know, if they're not there on, on for non-essential reasons. Right. 
given that so many airlines have already canceled flights and, and there, there actually could be now trouble getting out of China, is there any thought to having to put on further flights to other parts of China to you know, help Canadians get out you know, who might not be able to avail of a commercial flight? Well, thank you for your question. I mean, as you remember, when we first look at the situation that was to assess the need and charter the plane, uh, what is specific to Yuan and Hubei is that the whole region is in quarantine. So obviously, we acted quickly to assist Canadians, as we would always do, because within quarantine, and again, I want to put in perspective for Canadians, Wuhan is a city bigger than New York or London in terms of population. So you're talking about a city of about 11 million, which is basically on lockdown, where the latest information I had, you had about 6,000 cab, which are legally allowed to move around. So uh, we did something there, which is uh, probably one of the most complex operation we did, both on the ground logistics to make sure that people not only provide the plane to the airport, but obviously, assisting people with the logistics. We need to provide plate number, vehicle number, driver's name, plus the manifest. So there's a lot of logistics on the ground. What I'm saying, and I think it's based on best advice in our travel advisory, is that, as Minister Haidu has said, this is a very fast-evolving situation in China. And what I'm saying is that since there are currently still commercial flights between China mainland and Hong Kong and Canada, uh, those Canadians who are in those areas should really seek to come back if they're there for non-essential reasons to commercial flights. Uh, we are aware there's a number of Chinese companies which are flying to Canada. Uh, there's a number of flights from Hong Kong. And, and I think it's just common sense if the travel advisory suggests that, that Canadians uh, should use commercial means. Uh, while, like Minister Aidu said, airlines are making decisions, as you've seen day by day, about how many planes and whether they will continue uh, certain routing in particular. So uh, our advice is to say whilst these planes or this transportation commercially exist, people should should take avail of them. Uh, on the uh, the Hong Kong cruise ship, we've been hearing from some Canadians that uh, they feel like prisoners. They're stuck in their cabins. Um, what do you think about the conditions they're in? Um, can you help them? And is there going to be any help for them to return to Canada once this ordeal is over? So for Canadians who are watching us, so we have a cruise ship in Japan, but we also have Canadians on a cruise ship in Hong Kong. Uh, in Hong Kong, we have about 30 Canadians that I'm aware of uh, on that cruise ship. Uh, the latest information I had as I walked in is that they were going now to a screening. So we don't, I personally don't yet know if, if anyone has been diagnosed with the virus or not. And, and I suspect this is going to determine the next course of action. Uh, certainly, we're watching that. Uh, that as I'm talking to you, my understanding is that they're screening passengers, and once this screening is completed, obviously we'll have a better picture as to what kind of assistance we can provide and what are the local health authorities want to do with that particular ship and obviously the passengers. Uh, this goes next question. Well, always. I mean, you know, we're, we're, we have a full team. We have uh, our operations center in, here in, in Ottawa, which is fully staffed. We have a call center in Beijing with 30 people. We have two standing rapid deployment team, one in one. I mean, everyone is, is looking at that, both in Tokyo and obviously in Beijing to assist everyone, including obviously those in Hong Kong. Well, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is also in the air tonight. He's on a foreign mission to try to build support for Canada's bid for a two-year temporary seat on the UN Security Council starting in 2021. The Prime Minister will make stops in Ethiopia, 
Senegal and Germany over the next week. Canada will need support from African countries in particular, some of them francophone, to have any hope of winning the Security Council seat against rivals Norway and Ireland. Winning that seat, the government hopes, will be the a crowning achievement of its efforts to show Canada's back on the world stage. More on the Prime Minister's efforts and what's at stake in just a moment, but first, some background. The United Nations Security Council is responsible for ensuring peace and security around the world, recommending new members to the General Assembly and approving charter changes. The Council is composed of 15 members, 5 permanent members and 10 members that serve two-year terms. Those 10 members are elected by the General Assembly. Two coveted seats will be available to the Western European and Others Group in this year's election on June 7th. Canada will be vying for one of those seats against Ireland and Norway. Since the European bloc tends to support European countries, Canada will have to win votes from African countries in order to secure the seat. Canada, under Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, has led an almost $2 million campaign so far trying to win the seat. An upcoming visit to Africa is included in the campaign. Many critics say this visit comes too little too late as Canada's security spending has fallen far behind other countries. Canada also announced its withdrawal from its peacekeeping mission in Mali last year without plans to continue peacekeeping in Africa. The last time Canada put in a bid for the seat was in 2010 under Conservative Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Canada lost the seat to Portugal after failing to gain support from countries in Africa. Well, let's go now to the foyer of the House of Commons this evening where we'll find Rob Oliphant, the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Foreign Affairs. Garnet Jenis is the critic for multiculturalism and Canada-China relations for the official opposition, Conservatives. And Jack Harris is the foreign affairs critic for the NDP. Good to see you all, gentlemen. Thanks for being here. Let me begin with you on the, on the Prime Minister's trip to Africa. He's on his way. Uh, Mr. Oliphant, why is he going there now, and what is it he's trying to do in support of Canada's bid for the Security Council seat? I mean, the, the, the trip is obviously a bilateral trip to Senegal, and it's also uh, to meet with uh, many heads of state and ministers of foreign affairs at the African Union. This is the uh, annual assembly of the uh, African Union. I was there a couple of weeks ago to meet with officials, and it is uh, to, uh, to continue to talk about Canada's engagement in Africa. Uh, this is not something new. Uh, it's not his first trip to Africa, and uh, we've obviously been engaged. But, but he's really there to talk up Canada's bid, isn't he? It, that, that, is, that is a part of his, his uh, trip for sure, uh, but also we will talk about climate change, we'll talk about poverty reduction, we'll talk about peace and security. We're now chairing the, uh, the Peacekeeping Commission, uh, Peacebuilding Commission of the UN, and so he wants to talk about what we should be doing in, in this year as, a, as we chair that important commission. And I expect, let me just, I, I expect he will speak with each one of these leaders that he gets a chance to speak with and say something like, can we count on your vote at the Security Council? I, I expect, I mean, uh, we're politicians. We know that you need to ask for a vote or you won't get it. Right. And I did the same. I met with uh, uh, 15 or 20 uh, uh, officials and, and uh, elected representatives in Africa a couple weeks ago, and I did the same thing. And I think one of the things we're hearing is, is great encouragement for uh, Canada's reputation is strong in Africa. Uh, it, it's strong because of our peace and security initiatives, okay. strong because of our women and girls initiative and feminist let's, foreign policy. And we have a long time history Let's there. come back to some of that. Mr. Jenner, let me move to you though. Uh, uh, how do you view this Africa trip and Canada's bid for the Security Council seat? 
Well, on the trip to Africa, I think Canada's strategic engagement with Africa is very important. Uh, there are going to be some, some points of agreement uh, on, on that. I would add uh, that uh, with growing attempts by the Chinese government to expand their influence in China, uh, Western engagement, Canadian and other Western allies' engagement in Africa uh, in defense of our, our allies, and in some cases countering uh, the influence of the, of the Chinese uh, government is, is important, and I know we're going to have a chance to talk a bit more about that. On the issue of the Security Council bid, though, it is concerning to see uh, the, the government of Justin Trudeau changing foreign policy positions, it seems, uh, in a way that doesn't reflect Canadian values in order to try and pursue support of the Security Council. I'm thinking in particular about uh, voting in favor of a resolution to single out Israel at the UN, a resolution sponsored by, uh, by North Korea. Uh, the, the, these, are, these are things where you can see the, the electoral calculation being made in terms of the Security Council, uh, but, but we in the Conservative Party believe that Canada needs to be a principled voice in the world stage for our values. Some people are going to like that, some people won't, but, that, but that's the way it works. Jack Harris, what's your view of, uh, about this trip and Canada's bid? Well, I think, you know, Canada has to do, should have been doing a lot more a lot sooner in terms of this uh, Security Council bid that the, this government has had almost five years, four and a half years now to uh, pursue this uh, as part of our, uh, of the, the claim by, by Mr. Trudeau very early that Canada was back. Uh, there's not a lot of evidence of it. We're still uh, way, if you look at compared to, to Norway, for example, and their uh, development assistance at 1% of their GDP, and we're like a quarter of that. In fact, we're less than what it was when Mr. Harper was Prime Minister. So that's not a very good su signal that this uh, uh, government has been sending to the world when we're trying to do this. So they're behind the, the eight ball in the sense of they, they're playing catch up with uh, Norway and Ireland. Uh, well, do you, do you think this is a, a desperation trip here to try and save the Well, I, you know, I hope it's not because I don't want to see Canada uh, lose this opportunity. It would be a big blow to Canada's prestige and reputation, and uh, certainly the, this government would wear it. Uh, we lost in, in 2010 under Mr. Harper, and uh, we tried to, uh, the government tried to put a brave face on it, but the reality was that we weren't uh, doing the things that we traditionally have done in the world. We talk about multilateralism. We haven't done a lot of that. Lately, uh, we've seen the Ireland and Norway push those uh, uh, plans and okay. uh, to forward, and, and we're not uh, we're not quite there. Let me pick up on that, Mr. Oliphant. The UN countries will certainly have to make a choice between Canada, Ireland, and Norway, and, and both of those countries, as has been noted, spend more on foreign aid and and do more by way of peacekeeping these days than Canada. So, what does the Canadian bid have going for it? Well, on official direct assistance, I think you, you have to look at a variety of numbers. Our contribution around peacekeeping, our contribution. Uh, around refugee resettlement. There are many parts of, of our contribution internationally and globally that we are factoring in. I do want to say, however, that uh, what we are promoting is Canada's values and principles. What we're talking about is that Security Council chair should be filled by Canada, not because we're nice, not because we're Canada, but because But you know values. how this process works. So th these votes are often just based on what have you done for me lately? But Pour money into my country, you get my vote. Part of it's that, but, but I've had many conversations in the last several weeks. This is a big part of my job right now. And what we are promoting is Canada's values, Canada's principles. No votes have been changed at the UN because of this. We will continue to, to stand out for, for Israel. We will always be an ally of Israel and we'll always show that we're a friend of the Palestinian people. That is who we are and that is no secret. We've absolutely been, been consistent in that. Those votes do change from time to time, depending right, but, on the circumstances. But most of the, the experts, most of the experts, as you know, that you talk to suggest, and, and, and uh, let, me, let me move to Mr. Janus and we'll, we'll, we'll come back to the conversation too, but 
Uh, most of the experts suggest that, look, that really at the end of the day, a lot of it comes down to the dollar count. And it is that? well, the, the, and, it's, and it's based on uh, the UN measure is gross national income, and, and uh, Norway's at 1%. Uh, Ireland has a plan to get to 0.7%. Canada's at less than 0.3%. Um, and, and yet we have, we're the largest so this, host of refugees. We're the largest sponsor of refugees. Okay, Mr. Generous, right. That is noted. After year after year and nothing is being done right. about it. I hear you, Mr. Harris. I don't know, but Mr. Generous, jump in on, jump in on this. So, uh, so if, you know, if the measure is a bidding war, and I know Conservatives in the last campaign had a, had a pledge to cut foreign aid by 25%, so is a seat... Is a seat on the Security Council important to Canada? Well, our position in terms of, of the Security Council piece of this is that uh, it's great if Canada can have a seat on the Security Council, but that should not be the, the, the primary overarching goal of our foreign policy, such that we sacrifice uh, principled positions we've taken we in the past. We won't uh, well, well, Mr. Oliphant isn't mentioning the elephant in the room, which is that very recently his government sided with a resolution put forward by North Korea that singled out Israel for criticism. And they, they did, in voting in New York, the opposite of what they said Absolutely. they would do here in Ottawa. So, you know, and, and it's, it's this... But on a principle, but, but, but on the issue of funding, so yes. if, if, if part of the measure is, and it's certainly one of the large considerations, is how much are you prepared to uh, take of your, of your country's finances and put them into other countries and if you had a plan to cut foreign aid by 25%, that would suggest you're not prepared to meet that marker of trying to win a seat on the Security Council. And are you okay with that? Well, let, let me say two things very clearly about that. First of all, I do not believe that the goal of our development assistance should be to win a seat on the Security Council. No, the goal of our development assistance, no and let me finish, Absolutely. please. Okay, let, let him finish the and goal, then Jack Harris. The goal of our development assistance should be to help poor, suffering people around the world as much as we can. Now, we've seen under the Liberals how I think public support for development assistance has been declining because they haven't been doing it very effectively. We're in the middle of a leadership race as a party. We're going to be having a debate about this. The record is clear that under Stephen Harper, we spent more on aid than Justin Trudeau. We spent more Tied. aid and more effectively. Targeted aid. And, and he's going to have interests. lots of pretty words right. about I, it. I, but I, the fact I, is the numbers were higher under Stephen Harper. Never. We're going to continue to have that debate in our leadership race. Uh, for me, development assistance is very important. Uh, but it's not about winning a seat okay, on Okay, Mr. Harris, let me hear you on that. Helping suffering Look, uh, if, if the goal, if the goal of, of development assistance is to help people suffering around the world, we've had, a, we've had a party just, we just, you know, two months ago, three months ago, we had an election where the Conservatives were promising to cut development aid by 25%. Uh, so where is that commitment to providing assistance to people who are desperately needed around the world? Look, the goal, that's not, the goal is not to buy votes, and I never say, never say that. But, but we're looking at the comparison between Norway and Ireland, who have proactively treated this as a serious uh, foreign aid principle. The cl claims by development agencies, by countries around the world, have been growing year after year after year after year. But this government, in the last five years, has done nothing. In fact, they are we're worse than the Conservatives, but because they've, they've, they haven't increased. I want to pick up on another important uh, foreign affairs file that's uh, before Canadians and before the government right now, and that's the uh, relationship with China. Uh, Dominic Barton, Canada's ambassador, Mr. Oliphant to, to China, was, at, was a witness at the Special Committee on Canada-China Relations last night. He acknowledged the relationship is broken, talked about his continuing efforts to try and win the release of uh, those two Canadians being detained there, the two Michaels. Uh, he was brought in as an ambassador in part because of his close ties to China, and last night the opposition critics suggested those close ties are maybe too close. So how much confidence should Canadians have in Mr. Barton? I hope Canadians can, can review the... Uh, the 
witness testimony that he gave last night for the, uh, the special committee, and he showed uh, competence. And they can he watch it online on CPAC, by the way. They can uh, okay, can online on right CPAC. Right on and find it and watch the whole it. thing. Watch the whole thing, and it was two hours of someone who is a, a statesman, a businessman, someone who is uh, full uh, of integrity and intelligence, and has the nuance and understanding of how China works. Right now, we have a broken relationship, absolutely. Uh, I was in China in the spring. I witnessed this broken relationship. We all know about Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor in, in, uh, in, un, in, in, in detention, right. arbitrary detention. We all know about Robert Schellenberg having a, a, a sentence changed. We have a broken relationship. We know about canola, we know about pork and beef, all of those issues. His job is to cut through that, help restore it, and he's the right person to do that. Right. Was it less important that he, that, he, that he had some difficulty answering what, what Government of Canada policy positions were on, on things like the militarization of islands in the South China Sea and so on? Did, uh, is that an issue? That uh, not for me okay. right now. What I know is that when I look at my briefing book on China, it is massive. The number of issues are huge. Okay. I trust his instincts to find out what he doesn't know, to get the right information from the right people, and he will do it. Okay, Mr. Uh, Mr. Jenis. Uh, petty, petty criticisms of him uh, won't go far. What, okay. what this is about is a profound relationship-building person. We have time for you. Go ahead, Mr. Jenis. Uh, you, you were one of the uh, questioners at that committee last night who raised concerns about his, uh, his qualifications, if I can put it that way, for this job. Well, I didn't raise concern about his qualifications. I raised concerns about, about his ability to represent our values on the world stage, given his prior record. Uh, this is well, something. To me, that, that speaks all the qualifications. Well, well, sure. I, frankly, I mean, the, the response from Mr. Oliphant takes a lot of audacity after having heard the testimony last night. Mr. Ambassador Barton was not able to answer basic questions about Canadian policy on fundamental security issues. I asked him about the case of Mr. Chalil, a Canadian citizen detained in China. And he said falsely that Mr. Chalil is not a Canadian citizen, which is the Chinese government position, it's but it's certainly not the Canadian. Sorry, I'd love to hear your response on that. Do you see him as a citizen then? Of course he's a citizen. He okay, so Mr. Barton was wrong. Mr. Barton, I think, probably wanted to say, and I hope he will clarify with the committee, that China does not recognize his citizenship. Because the question was... But that's was, not what he but said. Darn it, right. the that's question, not what he said. The question was about providing consular services. No. That was your question. No. Your question was about providing consular services. And no. we can't provide... No, my question was about engagement sure with the case. I'm not sure and we can relive said, the whole... That's Jaleel, I don't think we can relive the whole committee testimony. But your, I encourage your viewers to watch they, they will. They will. But, I, I but, but Mr. Janus, let me, let me have you finish the point about... You, you have some clear concerns about whether he's equipped to do this job. Well, when, when, when he was running McKinsey, uh, according to the New York Times, they advised close to two dozen uh, Chinese government state-owned companies, uh, that, the, and, and that included companies building militarized islands in the South China Sea involved in the violations of international uh, law. His response to all of these questions about his involvement with illegal... Uh, well, I should clarify, his... his Be very careful. McKin yeah. McKinsey's... <laughs> McKinsey's involvement uh, with companies that, that were acting in violation of international law. Uh, when I asked clear questions about that, his response was uh, to, to suggest he, he wasn't aware of those details, but it was his job to set policy okay. and uh, very, very concerning testimony. All right, Mr. Harris, let me give a final word to you on this. 
Well, as we heard Mr. Barton last night, I mean, I was concerned that, that based on, you know, what we've heard from others as well, concern about uh, Democracy Watch raised the potential for conflict of interest, and I uh, challenged him to give, uh, to give him an opportunity to convince Canadians uh, that he will not be influenced by any of these considerations when doing his work. You know, Mr. Barton is probably not, we weren't trying to decide whether Mr. Barton was the best uh, possible choice for ambassador to China. We wanted, I wanted to know whether he was going to be able to be effective. Uh, we had no ambassador for eight months, uh, thanks to this government's, for some reason, during uh, the during the course of this uh, freeze, as it's been called by the Chinese, uh, not having an ambassador. It was a, a, a serious misstep by this government. This is the first time Mr. Bart has been presented to the public. He was appointed during an election. You know, this is not the right way to, to take seriously our, our challenges. Mr. Barton offered some interesting perspectives last night, and I hope he's going to be able to be successful. All right, uh, gentlemen, thank you all for your time tonight. I appreciate it. We'll talk again. Thank, thank you. you. Well, let's return now to Canada's bid for a seat on the UN Security Council and the Prime Minister's trip to Africa. Nicholas Moyer is the president of the Canadian Council for International Cooperation. He is with me now. It's good to see you again. Good to see you Thanks as well. for coming in to speak with me. So the Prime Minister's off to Africa to try and bolster support for mm -hmm. Canada's bid for a temporary seat on the UN Security Council. Uh, that vote in the UN happens in, in June, so it's, it is fast approaching in, in sort of those terms. But what's Justin Trudeau after in Africa? Is it a good idea that he's going? Well, it's a very good idea that he's going. Canada has deep roots in Africa, and it's an important regional bloc when it comes to votes for the Security Council. We're vying against two other countries, Ireland and Norway, that have strong relationships on the continent too, but in many places we have deeper relationships, whether that's through our relationship with the Francophonie and the Commonwealth, but also really individual relationships with, have, with many countries, including two that he's visiting. So, the, some people have suggested it looks, it, it's a desperation move, that Canada's bid's not going very well. I mean, how, how do you see it? Well, I mean, regardless, it's really important that Canada have a really strong relationship with Africa. And we have historically really had that. If you look uh, of our foreign aid budget, 38% um, of it as of tw 2018 went to that continent. Um, the objective in the government's feminist international assistance policies for 50% of that budget to be going to Africa. And frankly, in the long run, we need those relationships because that's the economy of the future. That's the continent that's growing fastest. That's where the countries with the fastest growing economies are. Uh, it's hard to separate uh, the foreign aid conversation uh, you know, as we speak now uh, from the UN Security Council, but how, how do you like our chances based on uh, who we're up against? Well, frankly, I, I, it's very hard from the outside to know, and at the end of the day, each country representative of the UN will make their own secret ballot right. vote, and so it's hard to guess. Canada has a lot of goodwill around the world, but we're up against some really impressive competitors. I mean, Norway has been a true and deep partner of countries around the globe, and while they won't have the, the EU's block of votes, mm -hmm. um, they have relationships that are very hard to uh, to compete against and if you even just on the uh, international well, why, systems why is budget. That? What is what is it Norway's been doing and that's what a lot of it comes down to what Norway's yeah. been doing in terms of uh, foreign aid funding right I mean they're they're in a little bit of a class of their own at, at they one, are in a one percent of gross national income compared to Canada which is 0.3. They really are in a class of their own and I think they've they've made big national strategic investments in their foreign policy and foreign engagement 
choosing actively to be partners, not always in the most showy and visible ways, but in, in the secret ways that matter in terms of being there for your partners and supporting them in their objectives. You know, if you look on the other, on the other hand, Canada has strong relationships, including on the African continent. But we've also been closing embassies around the world. You know, the African continent, the last 15 years, we've closed four embassies. Mm -hmm. That's as opposed to investing and deepening those relationships. And, and we have really deep brands in, in some of these countries. There's a saying in, in Ethiopia, where I lived for a few years, that um, when there's a drought there, they wish for rain in Canada because it'll, have an, it'll be a benefit right. to them. And, but the thing is that we've been drawing down on that capital over many, many years. Uh, in and successive governments. And successive governments. Right. So, um, so it's hard to know what, what our chances are. And, and the other thing to consider, I guess, is that both, uh, I think, the, the Norwegian bid and the Irish bid go back almost a, over a decade, right, that they've been planning for this. Mm -hmm. Canada's kind of late to the game. Uh, but does the fact that we're, we're spending um, so little, and I, in relative terms compared to mm -hmm. Ireland, and, and Ireland has got a plan to get to point, point 0.7 of gross national income, and Norway's beyond mm -hmm. that, as we've said. Uh, how much does that hurt us in a conversation when it comes time to vote? How much do those member countries look at that? And is that a problem for Canada to say, look, you're at point three and you really haven't talked about a plan to, to, to bolster that? I think it, it, it is fundamentally a challenge because when it comes to the numbers, these other two countries can really say we've made strong commitments. You know, you can see our, our action follows our words. But Canada's also been a really constructive actor on the international scene. And certainly we're seen as champions, whether we agree with the, you know, this prime minister's brand or not, um, we're seen as uh, defenders of liberal democracy, of human rights, of gender equality, and that is really valued as well. So it's not just a factor of our, of our ODA commitments, but we don't compare well. And historically, there's a very strong correlation between investments in foreign aid and uh, likelihood of getting that Security Council seat. Let me ask you about uh, the argument you know, let's let's for the moment separate uh, the bid for a Security Council seat from the broader conversation about the value of of boosting foreign aid spending. And mm -hmm. we, like last time you and I talked, was during the election campaign. Mm -hmm. The Conservatives had come out with a proposal to cut it by 25 percent. Uh, we had a conversation then. But beyond a bid for a Security Council seat, what, you know, what, what is the lasting value uh, that a country gets from from boosting foreign aid? There are huge benefits. You know, we all need to invest in our future. Canada prospers when the world does well. And it's really interesting to look at those arguments. Obviously, there's a moral argument. It's the one we often hear of doing the right thing. But actually, there's a really strong economic argument around investing in partners that will become uh, trading partners in the future. That's true of South Korea, as it is with Bangladesh or Vietnam, where there were wars and we invested in those countries through ODA. And they're now important trading partners of ours. Today, we're dealing with the coronavirus globally. Mm -hmm. I mean, strong global health systems are about protecting us. And some of the countries in the world, if, if this were to have happened in Africa, it would have exploded a lot faster. We have to be conscious that there are elements of our national interest in investing in the partnerships that will get us the Security Council seat, in the long-term futures of the trade that will come in these economies. Our security, you know, there are clear links between poverty around the world and extremism and terrorism. I mean, there are a lot of important arguments that one needs to look at. And don't we feel a little bit more lonely in the world today than we did maybe five or ten years ago, when it's really hard for us to secure the, the freedom of our Canadians that are in Chinese prisons, or when the U.S., we see so clearly our dependency on that trade relationship with the U.S.? Uh, how much, um, let's finish on this. The, 
uh, is it, uh, do you think the, the government's done enough to, to make the case for why it wants a seat at the UN Security Council? Has there been enough said about what value Canada can bring to that? That's a very interesting question, because I'm not actually fully certain of that case myself. I think there's a lot of benefit to ha us having a voice at that table, um, but that case certainly can be communicated very strongly in terms of the world needs uh, a temperate voice that, uh, that is like Canada's, and we need it at the Security Council seat. I certainly strongly support that bid myself, but has that message been heard by others? I, I think time will tell. Mm. And, and as you said earlier, if a lot of it comes down to, uh, you know, put your money where your mouth is, like show me what you're actually investing in, and it comes back to the, because you're, you're comparing competing bids, right? You uh, are. And you, and you look at what Norway's doing, you look what Ireland's doing, you see Canada's funding envelope down here, and that must raise doubts. It does feel like we're coming late to the game. Partly because of that, because you look at sort of the, the pitches being made by these two other countries and their long-term plays in terms of investments and relationships that they've been building. You know, can we point to the same things? Uh, it's not so clear that we can. You know, I think some people do see this as potentially a long shot for us. Um, you know, how important is it? There are some that would argue that, you know, a, a seat on the Security Council is not a real objective in and of itself that it also will expose us to challenges and being stuck between, for example, allies' interests and, you know, the right thing to do. Right. But, but, but does, the, does not winning a seat on the Security Council damage that message we heard when this government was elected that Canada's back? Are we still back if we don't have a seat on the... Or are we back at all? I mean, Look, I'm going to tell... I mean, I really think that's a good question. I think that Canada's been a very constructive voice globally but we really have a challenge about connecting action to words because even the ambition in the feminist international assistance policy, widely relieved, uh, sorry, well received by the partners that have been involved in feeding into that and the gender equality message and the human rights focus, but it needs resources to be implemented. And the reality is that we're not, we're not at all investing to the tune of the ambition that we're sharing. So there's a dissonance there. And I think those that are supportive of the government's vision just really want to see that investment. We don't have to be stuck on a percentage, right. but we need to see more. And we need to be doing our fair share. I mean, we're not doing our fair share. Uh, and so that raises a lot of questions when you're looking at sort of G7 comparators or OECD comparators. We're not at the front of the pack. We're not even average. We're behind average. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that irks Canadians a little bit. You know, we, we, we want to do our fair share. All right. Lots to consider in uh, your comments. Always good to talk to you. Thanks for being here. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Two senators are proposing changes to the rules of the upper chamber to prevent what they call partisan obstruction of important legislation. Marie Sinclair and Pierre Dalfon are both former judges and they say they're tired of seeing important legislation passed by the House of Commons being blocked by a handful of senators, sometimes for years. Last year, two bills, one mandating legal training for judges uh, in sexual assault cases and another to bring Canada's laws in line with the UN Declaration on the uh, Rights of Indigenous Peoples, died when Parliament was dissolved for the election. Another bill to ban keeping whales and dolphins in captivity almost didn't pass after being held up uh, by senators for three years. CPAC's Martin Stringer spoke to Senator Sinclair and Delphon about their initiative. Senator Sinclair and Senator Delphon, thank you very much for taking the time. I think I want to start with why this issue was so pressing and so important for you. Well, I think uh, from both of our perspectives, it, uh, it totally ran against our uh, fundamental principle as senators that uh, I think as well within the court system, we also followed very, very um, 
uh, importantly, and that is the, the right to come to a determination of the question before you. So that our feeling was that we were being prevented as senators from actually coming to a vote on some very important items. A piece of legislation that was particularly important for you? Well, of course, the bill relating to the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples was delayed and obstructed throughout its entire process here, even though it had passed the House relatively quickly. And yet here, a very small group of senators were able to prevent us from getting to a vote on it. And that died on the order paper, so now it's going to have to be reintroduced. Senator Delphon, was there a piece of legislation that particularly motivated you to... I went through the same bad experience in Murray about the uh, Judicial Training Act, Mrs. Ambrose Bale, was endorsed unanimously by the House of Commons, came to us and died on the other paper when I was just trying to push for one hour on the Senate floor to consider the report and have third reading done. So we have to resume again the whole thing because on the government bill, and it couldn't be achieved in the previous uh, parliament because it was a private bill, and private bills have kind of no status or low status in the system. And nowadays we are in the heyday of parliamentarism. The House of Commons is a, has a minority government, so there will be many bills coming from the MPs through their ability to gather uh, to, uh, and make a consensus on some issues, irrespective of the government feeling about it. And these bills that will reflect the uh, will of many parties, or at least two or three parties, they should not die in the House of in the Senate because they are private bills and they have no status. So okay, we I was changed out. I was going to ask that is one of the crucial elements the fact that private members' bills can be delayed or or they can be delayed almost ad nauseum or ad infinitum. Well, the ability of government to bring a closure motion with uh, regard to a government bill is a significant power, and while we don't think it should be used uh, very often. Um, the ability of the Senate to bring closure to debate and to call for a vote and for a vote to be held within a reasonable period of time is almost impossible when it comes to private members' bills. So what are you proposing? What uh, magic solutions will you have? Well, uh, to begin with, we're looking very closely at the issue of ch rule changes that need to be taken into account in order to impose, impose time limits on the, the time within which bills must be uh, considered at the outset and sent to committee and returned from committee and then voted upon for third reading. You know that any... It would be true actually for also the Senate bills, those that senators have initiated. So there would be a corresponding provisions. So there would be a time where second reading will have to happen, third reading will have to happen. But you know I can hear the hackles going up already. I can hear backs going up already because the senators here are quite... You pride yourselves in being very independent. You pride yourselves in being able to debate quite extensively and thoroughly, exhaustively bills. Do you think you're going to have a hard time proposing any sort of time limits? Well, what we're proposing is a minimum of two hours of debate on Senate bills, plus 15 sitting days. So there's about, in the previous parliament, only two bills last, had debates for about two hours on private bills. So this is really sufficient to have a full debate. That it's means at least eight to 10 senators will have to speak. It doesn't particularly cause me any concern around that because the timelines that we're talking about are timelines within which we can accomplish exactly what we are now doing uh, when we decide that we want to pass uh, a particular bill. So it's not like we're creating something that and imposing a tighter time frame than is now normally the case. It's just that we're preventing, we're working to prevent those exceptions when uh, 
uh, obstructions are put into place, uh, as happened with regard to 15 bills last year. I was going to ask, I mean, we, we saw one bill, the Free Willy Bill, as, as it was called, but to, to prevent uh, uh, keeping in captivity dolphins and uh, cetaceans and whales, uh, and that was almost three years before the yes, Senate. Right. This would prevent that? Uh, if we had timelines and if we required that certain things be moved uh, from first reading into second reading, from committee back to the chamber and, and in the chamber to third reading uh, within certain time frames, yes, it would prevent a, any bill from being held that long. That's unacceptable to be held for three years. Big question. To add to what Just Mary said, the 15 bills coming from the House of Commons died on the other paper, but over 20 coming from senators also died on the other paper, including uh, Senator Green bills on uh, advertisement uh, towards kids on, on some foods. You know, so th these are important issues that are left. When there was a consensus, the bill was adopted by the Senate went to the House of Commons, they adopted it with some amendments. So we never, anything that was left to do was to agree to the message, to agree to these amendments, and that was it, and we haven't done it. Well, uh, do you think, though, do you have enough support? Because you'll have to get multi-party support, and the configuration of the Senate right now is quite baffling, but do you think you will be able to garner enough support for this bill? So I've already heard some senators saying, come on, this is just the way this place works. When you get to the end of a session of government, uh, there is a crush, and some things die on the order of people. Well, the interesting thing is I think the, the newly appointed independent senators really want to be able to vote on, on issues that come into the Senate, so I'm not concerned at all that there's going to be any opposition there. And when it comes to the uh, opposition party now, the conservative senators, the interesting thing is that when they were uh, being faced by an opposition or with an opposition back before 2015, and they were being prevented from getting to debate, they actually came up with many of the real changes that we are going to renew. So when they were in this position, they wanted real changes, and we, we want to simply revive what they raised back in 2014. Okay, last question. I, can, I can't wrap up the interview without asking you, Senator uh, Sinclair. There is the outstanding issue, and it's a different, it's a different subject, but the outstanding issue of Senator Bayrak, uh, Bayak, uh, Lynn Bayak, she had the Ethics Committee, of which your chair, has recommended that she be suspended again. What's the status? Where are things at with regards to Senator Bayak's future? Well, Senator Bayak's uh, got the right to reply to the report, and uh, she has five sitting days within which to do that. And so uh, we have to wait until she does that. And then once she's replied, uh, then the Senate can consider uh, holding a vote on whether to adopt the report or not. The vote would be on whether to expel her or whether to uh, suspend her pending her completion of courses? No, the vote is with regard to the report's recommendations and whether the Senate accepts those report's recommendations. And the report right now recommends that she be required to undergo further training and that it be of a certain kind and that she write a better letter of apology. And once she's done that, uh, then the matter would be brought back into the Senate for determination as to whether all of that's acceptable. Listen, I want to thank both of you for taking the time. We will watch this development with a lot of interest as we do watch the Senate proceedings. Thank you very much. Our pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, after days of political controversy, the English Montreal School Board has now decided it will not use federal funding from the Court Challenges Program to fight Quebec's Bill 21. The school board asked for funding from the Court Challenges Program and was awarded $250,000 
the funding was attacked by the Bloc Québécois for days. The government of Quebec saying a federal program supported by funding from Quebec taxpayers should not be used to challenge a law passed by the Quebec legislature. Well, today the school board said it will uh, proceed with its court challenges, all right, but without the funding from the court challenges program. Did you feel the school board was pressured by just what the stories out there? The you, well, you have to ask that to, 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 well, to the school, but, but, but listen, I've said this from, the, from day one, this is an independent process. And the bloc was fighting for the independence of this process. It's independent, respected. Okay, okay. Are you upset? I have no role in this, and I have no opinion on this, and it shouldn't, I shouldn't have no No, because it's independent. I suppose that they understood that this was a bad idea. And I suppose that the government who gloated today about not having given one penny to the English Montreal School Board understands full well that if Quebecers wouldn't have raised, raised as they did, they would have been able to give that money to English Montreal School Board. Now, since the school board said we won't take the money, they are saving face. So far, so good. I just hope that they will remember the lesson. You think they were pressured? I think public opinion pressured them pretty much. Well, let's bring in our panel of uh, weekly, our weekly panel, rather, of party commentators. This week, I'm joined by Liberal commentator Greg McEachern, Conservative commentator Ashton Arsenault, and NDP commentator Emily Tamman. Good to see you all. Thanks for being here. Hi. Let's start with this, this big controversy over the Court Challenges program in the province of Quebec. Uh, we now have the English School Board of Montreal saying, okay, we won't take the $250,000 from the Court Challenges program to challenge uh, the Quebec government's Bill 21. And uh, the, the argument, the charge was sort of led by the Bloc Québécois in the House of Commons, and the Conservatives were uh, opposed to it as well. But the argument was basically you, you shouldn't be allowed to use taxpayer money, of which some of it comes from the people of Quebec, to sue the government of Quebec over a law that's been passed by the Quebec legislature. So let's start there. Greg, what do you, uh, what do you make of this controversy and what do you make of uh, what signal this might send? Well, it's strange bedfellows. You've got the Bloc, the Conservatives, the provincial government in Quebec all on the same side of this. I can, I'll leave aside what this might mean for the Conservatives down the road when they're trying to rebuild uh, in, in Quebec, in parts of Quebec, where they'd have a better chance, say Montreal, um, perhaps than say rural at different times. Setting that aside, the, this program was for situations like this. This is why it's there. The Conservatives did a really good job apparently uh, in terms of when they eliminated it, um, getting people on, uh, certain people on side with why it shouldn't exist. Um, I think if the other element is that it's Quebec, if, perhaps if it was another province, we wouldn't be talking about this. Um, federal government intervention, um, particularly in this province, particularly with this uh, government, um, may be problematic. Yesterday... Uh, to be clear, so when you say federal government, so it's a federal institution yes, involvement. Yes. So this is it's a... It, it, gets, it, gets, it, yeah. it gets taxpayers' money, but it's administered at the University of Ottawa. It's an arm's-length organization that's supposed to be designed for this. Absolutely. And, and the, this is what the program is, is for. So it, it's a bit sad to see, but, you know, politically well-played by the government of Quebec yesterday, when they criticized this, um, obviously the school board uh, felt that they needed to take immediate action. I think it's a bit sad. 
Ashton, what do you think? Yeah, it's interesting. I think Greg's absolutely right. If this uh, wasn't Quebec, maybe we wouldn't be having the conversation. But I'd be interested in learning a little bit more about sort of the pain point here because uh, the, they've came out and said that even if we do get funding under this program, we're going to leave it on the table and we're not going to do anything right. about it, uh, which is a bit unique. Uh, normally, when you apply for funding, uh, you would use it uh, if you were awarded that funding. Yeah, well, then um, we have this controversy in their, in their statement today. There's no direct tie to why they've decided not to accept the funding, but one assumes that it's kind of odd, though, isn't it? I mean, they're, they're not going to take the federal funding, but they're a taxpayer-funded school board that's going to fight the government with taxpayers. Yeah, money. it is, and that's why I wonder if there was a pain point or not, if, if somebody from the provincial government government said, you know, maybe you'd think twice about going this route. And I hope that's not the case. Uh, again, I don't know much about this issue. There, there is a lawyer on the panel who could probably yeah, speak well, a little bit more about we're gonna ask uh, the, in, the ins and outs of the program. It's, but it's also interesting. This is an interesting, because the, you add this other layer, Emily, the fact that I, I, I think this Montreal School Board's had some issues before. I think it's under government control anyway at this point while it tries to re restructure and reset itself. Uh, but what do you make of what's happened here? And the fact they've backed down, we're not going to take the money. Yeah, I mean, I think because we don't know exactly why at this point, it, it's it's difficult to really make too, too much of it. I think it's really unfortunate because I think the entire raison d'etre of the Court Challenges program is to ensure that citizens are empowered to take on governments when they um, feel that there are, you know, constitutional or other legal deficiencies with the law. And these types of challenges can be very, very costly. And so we don't want to end up in a situation where we have discriminatory laws on the books that effectively can't be challenged by people whose rights or interests are at stake. And it's concerning to think that a government could, and again, we don't know all the circumstances, effectively bully um, a claimant or a plaintiff out of um, taking resources to which they're entitled from an independent process, as you noted, right. um, in order to challenge this. And but I think does it send a ch would it send it? So uh, I guess what I'm wondering is the next time some organization wants to challenge a, another provincial law, uh, does this sort of uh, raise the possibilities that they'll certainly think twice and maybe not even do it because they don't want the same? If another province were to offer the same pushback, don't sue us with our own money. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure like what leverage the province truly has in that scenario because these are court challenges and these are going to be judicial determinations at the end of the day. So it depends. An organization like a school board that actually relies on the government for funding uh, might feel a little more pressed than you know a nonprofit that's just simply seeking to, to use these resources yeah, in order to bring a I, challenge. Yeah, what I'd be pushing back with right now is if the province was so confident in their bill then bring on all comers. Exactly. It, it shouldn't matter if if that money is budgeted, it's there, it's gonna be used by someone else. But if you're so confident in your bill, like why would you try to prevent this? Yeah. Let, let's talk uh, let me let, let's talk about the Conservative Party leadership race. And I want to focus a little bit, Ashton. Let's start with you on the on the kind of there's there's a, a perceived front runner in Peter McKay. The, the polling suggests that. Uh, and yet he's had kind of a rough week and a, a lot of it around this this uh, this interview uh, that, that got stopped by the handlers uh, in the middle of it because of some of the questions being asked. And he's, he sort of protested the handlers trying to stop it, but then said, okay, and let the interview end and, and walked away. And I, I guess I'm asking, are you... Are you watching this and wondering about the McKay unforced errors here early on in the campaign? Yeah, look, the first couple of weeks it looked like it was going to be a coronation, less and less so. I think when you're the perceived front runner and in this situation, there's no question about it, he is the front runner. You're inviting more scrutiny and inherently uh, you'll uh, invariably run into attacks by those that are looking to beat you. But in Peter McKay's case, 
Um, there was a story like a couple of days ago by inside sources on the campaign that are basically saying they're looking for new people to come in. Already. That's not that's not good, uh, particularly from a communication standpoint. And you've got leaks coming out of your campaign already. And I think we're only you know three four weeks in. And if you case. look if you look at what happened, in particular, I'm talking about the, the CTV interview. Um, yeah. There's in, in, I know at least a couple of you have spent some time working in sort of communications and how to manage these kinds of things. Um, and Emily, you have no problem with communication as well. But I, the, I guess what I'm asking is, there was an opportunity to flip this story. Like when when the handlers jumped in to say stop, he started to protest, saying, "No, she's a journalist. Just yeah, asking." He, he should have just refused going. to get yeah. up out of the chair and, and say, "No, no, I'll handle this, folks. Go ahead, ask your questions." He started. He's in, in, Peter McKay introduced this element of machuism into this that I just find ridiculous. Um, somehow questioning. That yoga is not masculine enough. He's, you know, he's okay with walking in a pride parade, but no, yoga. Well, he said that, that came from he acknowledges it came from his Twitter account, but no, then, but before he, that, no. his first interview with yeah. Brian Lilly of the Sun, he made this drop the gloves kind of stuff. It's silly. It's 2020. I can't believe he's introduced this element. But if you're going to introduce that element that you are the tough guy and you sit there meekly being bossed by two young unseen staffers off camera saying the interview's over, you're stepping on your own message. Who is Peter McKay man enough? If you to use his own terms, to be running his own campaign, it doesn't appear so. He's well, in the hands of some handlers. That's one. I mean, man enough, perhaps. But I mean, just the issue. Doesn't it just giant L leadership? Doesn't it just scream? Who's the leader in the room here? Yeah. Who's I, making the call? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Look, he he admitted that there was a problem with the tweet in question that spurred on the question in the first place, uh, and he could have addressed it right there, put it to bed, and moved on and walked out. Or he could have the tweet and taken it down. Absolutely, he could have. He did not could've. do. Could've. But also, I mean, what's ironic about the whole thing is that. Here, his, the best excuse he can come up with is, well, it wasn't really my tweet, and someone from my team put that tweet, and then his team is saying, it's over, and oh, I gotta go. So like, like you said, who's running the show here? Because um, I don't think that was a very good explanation in the first place. I would also say, I think all of his social media has been incredibly weak since he launched his campaign. It's almost embarrassing. It, it's not well done. Both the messaging and just the visual of it, I think, has been quite awful. But to kind of blame it on a staffer and say, well, you know, I'm not really in control of my social media. Oh, and I'm also not in control when I'm in a, an interview with a journalist. It's, it's quite surprising. Uh, does he recover from this? I mean, what, what does he have to do to sort of get past this? Well, they, they, I don't think so far there's not another big choice. I think probably right now people are scrambling to find another choice. What's interesting is he and O'Toole are positioning themselves to win the leadership, but not necessarily answer the questions that Canadians posed around them in the last, around Conservatives in the last election. Right, so the, bro so, the broader, the, yeah, the broader they're voting They're not public. sending messages that we are, to can broader Canadians, you can elect us. They're sending broader, you know, messages to the party saying, you hate Trudeau, so do we, vote for me. And I'm not sure that delivers them past where they got in the last election. Well, I think campaign. But is this, is this part of the is this part of the process about that, or is it just like, I got to win the party leadership first, then I can start telling them the kind of policies I want to put in the window? You don't have a shot at the top job unless you're the leader of one of the mainstream parties. And the reality is, a leadership election, Greg, you know that, and I'm a lead, you know this as well, is a far different beast than a general election. Membership, uh, you know, expects certain sorts of principles from their leaders, and the reality is they'll have to do a bit of pandering that they otherwise wouldn't. But do during this is a general. what the Democrats are going through in the states. They're sure. looking at: Do we want somebody who represents our party and our ideals, or, somebody or do you want somebody who can Trump. beat Donald Trump? And I think the Conservatives need to figure out: 
you know, if they pick a guy who is being as insulting as McKay is, is that going to actually be a win with Canadians? I'm okay. not sure it is. Well, and if we could just add one quick thing, I would also add that I think these days with social media, people are following the leadership a lot more closely than nonpartisans probably did in the past. And so you can't isolate the two. The things that you're saying in the leadership, that a lot of people in the general electorate are seeing those things now as well. So you can't do a complete 180 after winning the leadership and think you can divorce yourself from the things you said to get that job. Let's finish on this. The, and Emily, let, let me stay with you. The uh, Prime Minister is on his way to Africa uh, to uh, uh, talk up Canada's bid for uh, a seat on the UN Security uh, Council, temporary seat starting in 2021. Um, what do you make of the fact he's heading off to Africa? Is it just, is it, are you satisfied it's just a routine sort of travel trip or do you think they're scrabbling to save, save this bid? No, I mean, I think securing votes in Africa is critical to winning the seat, that's for sure. So it's unlikely to be a coincidence. I think it's problematic in that I'm not sure that the prime minister ever traveled there in the last four years. Certainly the foreign affairs minister never did. And so it's people are going to see through that there. You know, you show up when there's a campaign, but you haven't been, you haven't really had a presence there before now. And, you know, he's had four years to travel there. It's going to be very challenging given that the role that China plays in Africa right now and given our, the nature of our relationship with China right now. Um, so it's a really an uphill battle given who the competition is. I, I know this is something that they really want. I think it would be important for Canada, um, but I think you know this is a bit of a long shot for Canada at this point. Ashley, let me hear from you. Yeah, the, the importance of the UN Security Council aside, I think the campaign to secure a seat uh, and Canada's efforts on it have been shameful. I mean, we're $2 million in the hole already campaigning for this. Emily just said the Prime Minister has never been to Africa. That's true. He's obviously going out pandering for votes. And the reality is he's going to have to make a lot of deals to secure these votes. So we don't know what he's going to end up giving up behind the scene. And worst yet, it's politicized. Uh, I can't recall going back, uh, you know, over 50 years when a party said they would campaign on regaining a Security Council seat. I mean, it was, it was like, it's Canada very unusual. Back. And, yeah, and, and, and I think that plays into the narrative, and I think, uh, I hope we don't fall short, because I think that would be bad for all of us, but uh, it seems like a little too little too late. Greg, what are your thoughts on this? Prime Minister wants it. They had a chance to reevaluate priorities after the election. This was on the table. Uh, he consulted with people like Bob Ray, Blanchard, and this is what they decided to do. Um, you know, Emily refers to some of the things about the last four years. The United States and our relationship sucked up a lot of oxygen over the last couple of years, but it's become clearer that the U.S. is going its own way. There was a speech by Freeland about two years ago that kind of dictated that Canada would now start to not follow the U.S. And I think the seat is that much more important than it was, say, even three years ago in terms of this new world collection of countries where Trudeau seems to have a better relationship than he does with the United States. If we were to walk away, I think, you know, the National Post would be, you know, they're not happy today, they'd be not happy tomorrow and accuse Canada of slithering away from this. Um, I think it's the right thing to do and it's even more important. We don't know what's going to happen in the fall if Trump will get re-elected, but more and more Canada has to find its own way. Right. Uh, what does not winning mean? What does not winning mean? Uh, tough thing to... Because this was in the window for, for Liberals in 2015 and again in the last election. It was, it was a demonstration of the fact we're back, we're going to go after that seat and we're going to I, you know, if you don't like if, if you don't like Trudeau, Maurice you're, couldn't win it in 2010. You, yeah, you're you're going to add this to this I, I, to the to the pile. But I think the the reality is we'll find out um, what countries we have um, we had more work to do with. 
But if I could just say, I mean, it's you don't win a Security Council seat with political slogans and aspirational messages. People are going to look at your record, and we're really far behind in our international assistance. For example, we're, we're way below what we've committed. And again, and they've well, had well four below years. The two, the, the two yeah. competitors are Norway and Ireland. That's right, and they've had four years to address that. They haven't done it. Um, on the peacekeeping, peacekeeping file, you know, the, the words and the rhetoric versus the action, and, and that's not going to work. These countries are looking at our record, not just at what we say. And I would put climate change, frankly, into the same category. So um, this is going to be, you know, it's going to be a challenging campaign. I mean, I hope they're successful, and I hope that they're prepared to actually do the work, um, be, you know, behind what they say in the campaign. I mean, personally, uh, a failing from a politics standpoint, but overall, Canadians don't care about this. Nobody's shown up to vote over a UN Security Council seat. We'll leave it at that. Thank you all. Thank you. That's all for another edition of Primetime Politics on CPAC, the cable public affairs channel. I'm Peter Van Dusen. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time.